dance at the round table. We dance where we're able. We do routines to call the scenes to footwork impeccable. We dine well here in Camelot. We eat ham and jam and spam a lot. Hello, and welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast, where we talk about how movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world in both historical fiction and medieval-inspired fantasy. What did they get right? What did they get wrong? And what do they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past? I'm Sarah Ifdecker, and I'm doing this podcast because I'm a medieval historian, and because when I teach, I see firsthand how medieval media affects students' perceptions of the Middle Ages. And today, I have with me a guest. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hello, I'm Maeve Doyle. I teach art history with an emphasis on medieval art at Eastern Connecticut State University, and I'm very excited to be here. Thank you so much for joining me. And I am very excited to have a fellow medievalist on here for the first time, in part because, as you will see shortly, she got to do some of the research, and therefore <laughs> I didn't have to do all of the research. So today's movie is Monty Python and the Holy Grail. So it's written by Graham Chapman, John Cleese, Eric Idle, Terry Gilliam, Terry Jones, and Michael Palin. So, of course, you know, Monty Python, your standard, your, your standard Monty Python, I guess. <laughs> Graham Chapman is Arthur. John Cleese plays Lancelot. Terry Gilliam plays uh, the animator as well as Patsy. Uh, Eric Idle plays uh, Robin, who is kind of my favorite in a weird way. <laughs> Terry Jones is Bedivere. Michael Palin is Galahad. Carol Cleveland, who's in other things too, I think, yeah, right? Yeah, she's a, she's a Python, Python regular. Thing? She and yeah. um, all of the other kind of supporting actors. Yeah, yeah, they're pretty much all Monty Python regulars. Yeah, so she is a Zoot slash Dingo, Connie Booth as the Witch slash the Crone, and Neil Innes as the Minstrel, Robin's chief Minstrel. <laughs> and it was filmed largely on location in Scotland, uh, mostly at Dune Castle, or I'm probably pronouncing that wrong to be honest. D O U N E. Yeah, um, although there are Scottish names, who knows. Yeah, so uh, spelling seems like a good idea with that. So for our first section, enumeratio. We'll be beginning with first a very brief recap and then going into some general discussion of the movie. So we begin in 932 AD, where Arthur and his squire Patsy travel throughout Britain in search of illustrious knights to join their Knights of the Round Table at Camelot and in a series of comic vignettes. He eventually recruits Sir Bedivere the Wise, Sir Lancelot the Brave, Sir Galahad the Pure, and Sir Robin the Not-Quite-So-Brave as Sir Lancelot, as well as, of course, Sir Not Appearing in this film. Upon arrival at Camelot and a song, uh, Arthur then decides they will not go to Camelot after all, as it is a silly place. And God then gives them a quest uh, to seek the Holy Grail. In additional vignettes, we see their adventures and misadventures and their quests, first together, then separately, and then finally reunited. 
After a number of deaths at the hands of the rabbit or of, of Carabanag, or I guess the teeth of the rabbit, uh, and then at the Bridge of Death, Lancelot, Arthur, and Bedivere make it across, but the film ends abruptly as ultimately all three and their army are arrested by 20th century policemen for the earlier murder of a historian. So that obviously is the kind of very brief outline, but does not cover all of the very delightful scenes of this movie. So you had a short before this movie, which is not on the Netflix edition, right? Yes, it was added to the DVD release. And bless my parents. I watched this movie with my parents last week. Uh, Shout out Kevin and Judy Doyle for being my movie buddies. We put the DVD in. A clip called Dentist on the Job, black and white 1950s short starts playing. And my dad says, did I do something wrong? I thought we were watching Monty Python. (laughs) (laughs) And I had the exact same reaction when I watched the DVD a couple of years ago when I prepared to teach it for the first time. Uh, I just love how they kept the surreal humor going uh, in the DVD release. Yes, which uh, I do not have on the Netflix edition, but you definitely see in the credits as well, which mm-hmm. has these uh, kind of faux Swedish subtitles that eventually kind of go into this long story about a moose. Yeah. So that makes me laugh every time. The credits and uh, now this short set you up to know in a sense exactly what you're getting into, but also to have no idea what you're getting into. I can't even remember the first time I saw this movie. And so I can't remember how I reacted to the fact that all of a sudden you're watching and then, you know, there's like this whole moose thing. And there's this bit <laughs> at some point where uh, in the credits, even after it says the people have been fired, or, or I guess it's they say that you know the person responsible for this has been fired and then there's more moose stuff including one where it's uh moose says moose trained to mix concrete and sign complicated insurance forms <laughs> and then you know the person responsible for sacking the people before has now also been sacked so yeah the title card lo- locates us in 932 AD and we our first real introduction is the sound of hooves approaching and we see Arthur and Patsy ride up to the castle looking for knights and we actually see them banging two coconuts together yeah well um, we've got to yeah. talk about the coconuts but actually we the very first thing that we see is a man on a wheel suspended on a wheel which comes straight out of 15th and 16th century visual culture and things like Bruegel yeah it's in this like foggy landscape yeah this foggy landscape we have the man on the wheel and then we have our heroes yes so and they are you know trying to ask at a certain castle who's the lord of this castle does he want to come join the knights of the round table and are instead derailed by this lengthy debate about where he got the coconuts that he's using and because he's not actually writing he has these coconuts that he's banging together yes to um, simulate <laughs> Um, Which is, Um, I think, exactly what Foley artists in the 1970s were doing to make horse sounds, and probably still today. Um, Foley artists who do the the sound design for radio and television. The Pythons just brought it to the front of the camera. (laughs) Yeah, which I find to be just such a delightful kind of commentary on, uh, you know, filming practices and sound effects in general. Yes. Um, but that it's, you know, something that's exposed in that way for the watcher. Yeah. Also, do you, are you suggesting coconuts migrate is one of the better lines ever written. But Sarah, are you suggesting that coconuts migrate? What is the history of coconuts in medieval <laughs> England? I, so this is exciting that there actually is somebody, uh, Kathleen Kennedy, 
<laughs> who has written about specifically coconuts in England in response to this scene. And that there were, in fact, coconuts in England, uh, probably not carried by swallows, but by various trade routes. So at least there were coconuts by the 15th century, um, although they tended to be elaborately made into cups rather than being carried around in lieu of having an actual horse. Yeah. And this actually points to a big misconception that we have about the Middle Ages and maybe even medieval England especially as this kind of isolated place. England is an island. When we talk about, at least in, in art history, when we talk about the art made in England and Ireland, we call it insular from the islands. Right. But it also shapes the way that we think about these places as kind of isolated places on the edge of the world. Um, but they were really incredibly connected. Bodies of water didn't isolate land masses. They connected them. So these coconuts, which came from India and traveled through, through the Indian Ocean via various trade routes all the way to England, points to this global Middle Ages that's really changing the way that we think about this period of history. Right. And of course, a big part of that, and this is a big conversation in medieval studies today, is uh, um, the fact that increasingly scholars are trying to challenge the perception of the Middle Ages as a period where essentially everyone was white and Christian. Mm -hmm. And a big part of that is being very much aware of uh, and highlighting these many, many connections that even play in a place like England, which, while not entirely white and Christian, was not perhaps the most diverse region of Europe. But even there, there are certainly connections that are being made through trade. Um, many people, at least who lived in medieval England, would have at some point met somebody who was not a white Christian. Yes. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to note about this scene is that I actually could totally imagine medieval people having that kind of debate about uh, <laughs> the capacity of swallows to carry various things. <laughs> it seems almost like a kind of absurdist version of the, you know, prototypical angels on the head of a pin discussion. Yeah. <laughs> so they, uh, they continue on. Uh, we have the famous uh, bring out your dead scene. Here we are very much getting into one of the first scenes that really highlights the Middle Ages as a filthy and disease-ridden uh, world, as yes. well as one that is marked by a deep disregard for human life and, and animal uh, life and did animal you, life did you catch the old woman banging a cat against the wall yes there is just such a kind of cavalier attitude toward cat care in this movie and animals in general i i actually yeah. worry about the animals on set there's a duck that gets literally thrown around in several scenes <laughs> Right, including one that I'm not quite sure how, especially at the time, it really seems like it must have actually just been a duck that somebody <laughs> threw up the side of a castle and yes. hopefully then caught. Yeah, no, that was that was a real live duck. I didn't check whether this movie had the no animals were harmed in the making of this film thing. Uh, yeah. I'm a little nervous about that. Mm -hmm. So in addition to these, uh, you know, this cat that's being slammed against a wall... There's also a uh, man who's bringing, I think it's supposed to be his father, to the uh, mm -hmm. the person carrying the dead away and kind of tries to throw him on the cart even while he's yelling, I'm not dead. <laughs> I feel better. <laughs> Through this, Arthur is really kind of riding almost as this like beacon of light, like he's literally the only thing in the scene that's not dirty. Right. And of course, then the response is somebody is, you know, he's walking as he's uh, riding, uh, quote unquote, by, is that somebody says, uh, who's that? No, must be a king. 
why he hasn't got shit all over him, which uh, very much, again, is kind of illustrating this uh, contrast in some ways between a kind of idealized vision of the Middle Ages mm-hmm. uh, and a very unidealized vision of the Middle Ages, neither of which I would say are quite accurate to the real medieval world, mm-hmm. but uh, are both stereotypes in their own way. Yeah. He also uh, meets a group of peasants who have an anarcho-syndicalist commune. <laughs> <laughs> this, I think, is is the academic's favorite scene. <laughs> yes, I absolutely love this scene. I also think it's totally right about the lady in the about the uh, the lady of the lake. Yes, um, with the comment, "Strange women lying in ponds distributing swords is no basis for a system of government." <laughs> so he, you know, initially is trying to talk to this peasant and try to figure out who his lord is. He does not succeed, <laughs> and um, ends up kind of like savagely beating him. <laughs> So again, we have this emphasis on casual violence in the Middle Ages. Yes, casual Uh, violence, social hierarchies. Yes. Um, One of the things that I love about this scene, though, uh, comes back to what you were saying about the historical realities of diversity within England, medieval England and Europe as a whole. I love that Arthur as the king can stumble on this collective living in his kingdom that he had no idea of and they have no idea of him um that always made the world of python's camelot seem like such a rich place to me you can discover any sort of thing here yeah and i thought that was such a just interesting uh concept and something that probably is true to some extent for a lot of very rural areas, um, especially, Mm. you know, in the early Middle Ages, is that people very possibly do have lords that don't show up a lot that they're not really aware of. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I think that's just such a great scene that even while being really absurdist actually gets at some cool things about what the world might have been like in the 10th century. Yeah. There are not a ton of women in this movie, really, I guess, except for the scene where there's just like a lot at once, but they're kind of undifferentiated. Mm Mm-hmm. We'll talk about that. Yeah, uh, so that'll come up throughout. Um, uh, here, the uh, the only thing we know, I think we know the peasant's name. The peasant is Dennis. Dennis. But we do, the other woman, or the other peasant is credited as his mother, um, although played by a man. Yeah, uh, specifically Terry Jones. Terry Jones, yeah, who also plays the mother in Life of Brian. Mm-hmm. But so even though you have this uh, female character, the female character, I would like to note, does not have a name. And also seems to be much less knowledgeable and much less politically opinionated than her son is. Mm-hmm. Arthur then goes on to fight the Black Knight. Um, so, of course, this is the, you know, it's just a flesh wound. Uh, no, it's not. Your arm's off. <laughs> um, this is actually the scene because of which my mother deeply confused some poor, innocent people. <laughs> um <laughs> My mom is not really a Monty Python fan, but has been kind of not entirely consensually exposed to a lot of Monty Python because my dad and I both really like it. And uh, at some point then just because of that, some random stranger, like, I don't know, noticed that she'd cut herself or something in public one time. And she said, oh, it's just a flesh wound. (laughs) And he says, oh, are you a Monty Python fan? And she just stares him down and goes, no. So this is one of the quotes that is even stuck in the mind of a person who has zero interest in Monty Python. <laughs> right. I was going to say, you're familiar with the scene. You've seen it on somebody's t-shirt. Yeah. My, my dad actually has that t-shirt. <laughs> yeah. 
We uh, then in the next scene finally meet the first knight who does ultimately join the round table since the black knight is invited, but instead they fight each other and the black knight ends up without any limbs. Sir Bedivere is in the midst of basically trying to deal with a group of townspeople who are insistent that uh, this woman that they've dug up is a witch, initially with the argument that she is dressed as one, but it turns out <laughs> that they have actually had, like literally given her a carrot as a nose. <laughs> Uh, and the hat, and the witch's hat. I think this is also, by the way, the scene where we uh, see the first of our kind of dour, flagellant monks hitting themselves in the head. Oh, I think they're before the bring out your dead scene, but yeah, oh, they're it's, here? it's okay. somewhere yeah. in this, yeah. this kind of setup. Yeah. Act. We then have this kind of, uh, in some ways, parody of uh, a kind of logical demonstration of how to determine if this person is a witch, which mm-hmm. is interesting, and uh, begins with the, you know, okay, so what do we do with witches? Burn them. <laughs> what do we burn apart from witches? And I like that the person initially just says, more, more witches! witches. <laughs> <laughs> so then what else do you burn? You burn wood. What weighs the same as wood, a duck? And so then they end up uh, putting her on these large scales to determine if she weighs the same as a duck. Yes, the first appearance of our duck, which I think, I think is the the, the secret star of this movie. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. (laughs) It certainly is the most put upon star of this movie, I think. (laughs) Not that most of the costumes look super fun to wear. (laughs) Well, I'm given to understand that most of the chain mail was actually like sweaters, chunky knit sweaters, spray painted. Oh, silver. really? Yeah. Oh, that's actually kind of a good idea. It Arthur's actually doesn't is look real chain that mail, bad. But I think everything else. Oh, that's interesting because it actually doesn't look that bad. Right? Yeah. Definitely maybe one of the better costuming things in this movie. <laughs> The, uh, the woman is ultimately apparently determined to be a witch because she does in fact weigh the same as a duck. Yes. I was like, all right, fair enough. Yeah. This is, I guess, our second woman in this movie, who is apparently a witch, uh, but we don't really know anything else about her. (laughs) Well, she's presumably executed immediately. Yes, since they are taking her off to be burned, and yeah, there's no reason to think at this point that that's not what happens. Yeah. (laughs) So uh, we're we're not doing great at this point on having, like, surviving named women. Mm Mm-mm. In this movie, so uh, thus far, it's questionable if this movie passes the Thief Decker test, which I have invented, of having a single named woman character who doesn't die. So uh, God, now that it's we've such collected, a low bar. Oh, isn't it a low bar? Yeah. Like it's even a lower bar than the Bechdel test, and the yeah. fact that there have been multiple movies that have not passed yeah. is really depressing. <laughs> and my favorite being Kingdom, or not Kingdom of Heaven, uh, King Arthur: Legend of the Sword which I think is A, just a terrible movie, and B, just like hates women more than anything else I've ever seen. (laughs) So the knights finally come together. Um, I guess this is the first appearance of the book of the film, which is already set up at this point as a kind of cross between a something like a photo album and something like an illuminated manuscript. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And one thing that I love is that it looks, it looks like a real book. Like I think somebody actually made this book. (laughs) 
Yes, it's kind of adorable. And especially because it's this book in the later scene, I can't remember which one it is, uh, where there's a like a monster hand mm-hmm. who's turning the pages and it very clearly looks like there's a real book and then a person with like with, a a, with like yeah, with like a monster rubber glove. Yeah. Um, who's turning the pages. So delightful. <laughs> so we have the introduction of our knights who are uh, the same kind of list that we met before, which includes both your, you know, Arthurian standbys of Lancelot and Galahad. Uh, and Bedivere, as well as Sir Robin, the not quite so brave as Sir Lancelot, <laughs> and Sir not appearing in this film, who is literally a baby inside a suit of armor. Yes, I believe it's actually Michael Palin's baby. Oh, yeah, that's so cute. <laughs> <laughs> Was the baby actually placed inside a suit of armor, do you think? That I can't tell you, because Wikipedia <laughs> did not tell me. But it looks like that actually might have been a real human baby that somebody just like plopped inside like a suit of armor. (laughs) And probably like a plastic suit of armor, but still. They make it to Camelot. Um, We then have uh, the kind of first uh, really big uh, song and dance number Mm -hmm. of the knights at Camelot. Arthur's response upon uh, after we see the song is just, on second thought, let's not go to Camelot. It's a silly place. (laughs) Which I just really enjoy because there's like, I don't know, at this point, what, half an hour or so of the movie, which is, like, built up this, like, we are going to Camelot, we're so excited to go to Camelot, and then you just have this one scene, and, well, it's not. (laughs) Pass. After that, we have our big anime, or we start to have a couple of our big animated sequences. Yes. God, who, uh, God appears to them out of the sky, and God is an animated uh, figure. Animated old white man. Yes, not entirely surprising, and I suppose relatively true to a standard medieval person's idea of what God probably looked like, yeah, more or less. Uh, and God is kind of funny. I mean, you know, they kind of start to bow and says, and God says, you know, stop groveling. I hate groveling, and tells them that they should, uh, that he is sending them off on a quest to find the Holy Grail to be an example in these dark times, uh, which I guess is a Dark Ages comment. <laughs> Yeah. There's also a kind of, you know, after the like, no groveling, they're like, a good idea, Lord. He's like, of course it is. It's my idea. (laughs) And yes, and then there's a big animated sequence that's introducing the quest after I think Galahad says something like, praise be God. Yeah, so there it goes right into an animated title scene where horns and heraldic banners emerge from the clouds. Um, They're playing this triumphant trumpet music. Uh, so forcefully that they blow a shepherd off his hill, kind of tumbles away with the sheep staying behind. It then cuts to, we see a little bit more context for these horns. They're not being blown by people's mouths, but rather by their rear ends. So this is a an elaborate fart joke, which actually comes directly from a medieval source, uh, as I'll talk Yay. about a little bit more <laughs> later. So uh, these... Uh, but trumpets cut to angels flying heavenward holding an organ. Jesus emerges from the clouds. He's making his little two-fingered blessing gesture, but is kind of waving back and forth like, hello. <laughs> more angels waving their wings, play some more trumpets, um, this time the conventional way. And an angel and a nun use pulleys to raise the title of the movie, interview the quest for the holy grail and this is done in a very medieval fashion specifically a very gothic fashion um late medieval with historiated initials decorated initials delicate vegetal decoration and um even some hybrid figures one of the vines making 
making a border or or a part of an initial turns into a man's head and the background looks like parchment or animal skin which manuscripts were written on and it's even ruled so it it is made very specifically to look like a medieval manuscript yes which i think is a really cool choice their first stop is at the castle that it turns out is populated by French knights who, uh, you know, are some, at some point uh, when asked if, uh, you know, they would like to join the quest, the quest for the Holy Grail, they say, oh, we've already got one, which comes back later at the end of the movie. The French knights uh, begin, uh, begin to basically just mock them uh, incessantly um, and tell them to go away. And then when they do not, in fact, go away, throw a lot of animals at them. The cow, at least, I hope is not a real cow. That's definitely not a real cow, yeah. The cow also, by the way, kills off one of the, or I guess actually uh, various flying animals ultimately kill two people, uh, both of whom, however, are serpents. Uh, and mm-hmm. that also, I feel like, is a kind of standard trope in medieval films is that you uh, kind of have extra killing off of the, uh, you know, people who are, you know, servants or peasants or uh, and other people in a kind of subordinate positions. Yeah. Yeah, there's, so yeah, the weird kind of violence toward animals. There's also this uh, great Trojan horse bit, Mm-hmm. where Sir Bedefere suggests they plan that they build a giant wooden rabbit, which they then are supposed to be inside and then, you know, go into the castle and attack the French, but uh, they do not actually get inside the wooden rabbit, uh, which is then also thrown over the wall and kills someone else. <laughs> Upon this, they decide to split up. We then also have an additional kind of brief narrative scene mm-hmm. from a, somebody who is just labeled as a famous historian. <laughs> He unsurprisingly is a very elderly British white man, being the often idea of what historians look like. I'm not sure what else you would be looking for. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I'm pretty sure all historians are elderly men. I'm an elderly man. Same. <laughs> so the uh, the elderly famous historian uh, begins to, is kind of standing in these ruins, which uh, looked vaguely medieval, but uh, you said your dad looked it up, right? Yeah. Yeah, my dad looked it up. Um, The ruins are actually 17th century. I was there, had it paused, I was squinting at him, like trying to see the arch shape. Um, My partner was there, he's an ex-archaeologist, he was squinting at it, trying to look at the the masonry. My dad just looked it up, 17th century. Uh, Well, oh well. At least he is a historian who's supposed to be in the 20th century, so it's not technically wrong that he's standing in front of 17th century ruins. Yeah. And so he's kind of starting to explain something about the quest and then is abruptly murdered. Mm-hmm. So uh, more senseless. A, a knight on an actual horse this time, yes. I think. This is yes. the only horse that appears in the movie. Yes, the actual <laughs> knight on a horse. Is it Lancelot or is it just a general knight? It's, it's an unidentified knight. Okay, so it is an unidentified knight. Just, just basically it's like a drive-by yeah. stabbing. <laughs> Just kind of kills him and runs off, and then we see you know, his wife running out of the house. And uh, this will be a kind of a couple, of, like a couple of cutscenes throughout the film, is that we'll see you know his wife talking to police and like them putting a sheet over the body. Yeah, presumably his <laughs> wife. She's never identified either. That's true. Yes, uh, presumably his wife. She she definitely does not have a name. It is not really identified. Although I guess he doesn't have a real name either, uh, <laughs> since he has just identified as a famous historian. She does probably have the. Um, most pivotal role of a woman in the movie, though. That's true. I mean, from the perspective of uh, 
would the narrative actually be changed if she was not there? Mm -hmm. Weirdly enough, she actually might ultimately be the person who has the greatest impact on the narrative. Yep. (laughs) Having called, because she called the police after her husband was murdered. So at this point, the knights split up and uh, we have the individual knight's tales. And there's a little kind of animated sequence introducing each of them, I think, right? Yes. The first is Sir Robin. The not quite so brave is Sir Lancelot. I find Robin's minstrels to just be an absolute delight. Yes, Robin's minstrels are one of my favorite parts. The other thing that I love about Sir Robin is his heraldry, which is checky green and white or argent with a big black rooster. Yes. (laughs) Because he's chicken. Yes, which I think is so great. So the minstrels start by singing, you know, brave Sir Robin, you know, he's not afraid to be, you know, killed in all sorts of nasty ways and have his entrails ripped out. And, uh, you know, your kind of standard, uh, you know, comment on masculinity. Uh, He stops them right before they say something about something horrible happening to his penis. (laughs) (laughs) And then also runs into the uh, monstrous three-headed knight. Yes. Played by Terry Jones, Graham Chapman, and Michael Palin. Yes, so it's uh, these kind of three heads, you know, all on a shared body, who I feel like are vaguely being presented as this, like, queer polyamorous triad. Definitely. (laughs) Definitely. In ways that are kind of problematic by 21st century standards, but... Which I also kind of love. I love this character and their comfortable little domestic situation out there in the yeah. woods. He, they are like, are they just very charming? Mm-hmm. Uh, the way they interact, that they kind of bicker, but then ultimately they come to an agreement, which is that they're going to kill Robin. And then uh, have tea. And then have tea. <laughs> and I think no biscuits is what they ultimately settle on. Yes. There's a discussion of whether or not they will have biscuits along with tea. But yeah, no, they're very cute. Like, they actually seem to like each other more than probably any other group of people in this movie. Yes. Can we say that this is the most functional relationship in the movie? I think we can absolutely say this is the most functional relationship in the movie. Arthur and Bedivere have a pretty good relationship. That's true. Second best. Yeah. Robin takes advantage of their bickering to, uh, you know, basically just take off. At which point you then have the minstrels continuing the song of uh, Sir Robin bravely ran away. Yes. <laughs> it's what he does best. <laughs> and him, you know, saying, no, I didn't. Please stop. Please stop. Stop. <laughs> we then continue with the tale of Sir Galahad, which uh, is first preceded by there's another animated sequence, which has more of the uh, self-abusive monks. <laughs> And uh, this then leads into an illumination, uh, which uh, you should talk about um, as the particular art history expert. (laughs) Yeah. Well, this is why uh, I, when Sarah invited me to come on the show, I wanted to do this movie because it has so much great material culture to talk about. So this animation shows the flagellant monks chanting and processing Uh, all the way to a diving board, where each one gives a little hop and then jumps into a little body of water. One of them, though, overshoots. He dives too far, misses the body of water, and finds himself in this little composition with a confessor, a priest, 
who's giving confession to a woman who's kneeling beside him. The confessor has his hand on the kneeling woman's head. The monk, in his dive, knocks the woman and she spins like she's a little pinwheel and lands upside down with her dress falling down. So now the priest's hand is on her, exposed behind, and he says, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and this little, this little composition of, of priest and, and woman confessing uh, is taken pretty directly from a manuscript, a manuscript which can be identified. It's in the British Library, Stowe, manuscript Stowe 17, folio 191R. We'll put a link up on Facebook. Yes, absolutely. Um, but this is just one of many examples of Terry Gilliam, who is the animator for all of these scenes, um, Gilliam taking images pretty much directly from medieval sources and then doing something very silly with them. Though, as we'll see, the silliness that he brings is by no means removed from the kind of silliness of these original medieval images. Right. And I think this one is also a fun example and uh, as well, because it very much highlights the uh, problems of often there being kind of failures of chastity yes. um, with priests in particular. And that's sort of a common theme in a lot of medieval literature that a number of people don't quite believe the priests are as chaste as they should be. And we know from some amount of evidence that many of them were not, in fact, as chaste as they were supposed to be. Absolutely. And this anxiety around confession too, yes. as this kind of very private, intimate interaction. Yes, and the fact that, you know, you kind of can almost understand why there would be certainly, you know, male anxieties about their wives essentially being, or, you know, daughters being closeted with these men. Mm-hmm. And then that also links up to the following scene, which is very much about, which is about Galahad and his near failure to maintain his own chastity or purity. Yes. So yes, he is known as Galahad the Chaste or Galahad the Pure. And so he, of course, is the one who, upon seeing a grail beacon, is ultimately led to the castle Anthrax, which is inhabited by, uh, I believe the line is, eight score young blondes and brunettes between (laughs) 16 and a half and 19. (laughs) (laughs) Including uh, Zoot, the one who he's talking to uh, initially. They're all dressed completely in white which is supposedly, you know, something that would be perhaps symbolic of purity. But as we will, as you see very clearly, purity is very much not what they have on their mind. If they are pure, it is not by choice. Yes. And it's a kind of odd environment, too, because it's kind of a, it's not exactly a convent, but is a kind of convent-like atmosphere. Yeah. Well, this is um, this whole scene is uh, a reference to things that are in various Arthurian legends, the yeah. castle of maidens. So these women yeah. kept captive against their will. And I, I kind of like the way that it gave their perspective. They are yes. so bored. They are so bored. They are so horny. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I will at least say, I'm not sure I would say that they have a lot of impact on the total narrative outside of this scene, but they do certainly have agency Mm -hmm. and that, you know, Galahad shows up and they know exactly what he wants and very quickly start to try. Yeah, they lured him there and then quickly start to try to manipulate him Mm -hmm. into having sex with a lot of them. (laughs) As many as they can manage. As, As many as possible. (laughs) <laughs> and if we want to talk about women with names, 
Here yes, we have a castle full of women, many of whom are given names. Names like Zoot, Midget, Crapper, Dingo. So Zoot's twin, I believe, is yes. Dingo. And two doctors named Piglet and Winston. Yeah, so we also have women medical professionals. Mm-hmm. Which, uh, while they would not have, you know, had the title of doctor, women would have certainly had that expertise. So that's exciting. Absolutely. And would have exercised it, especially in the earlier Middle Ages, early in Central Middle Ages. Yeah. So very exciting. Though I don't think, I still don't think the movie passes the Bechdel test. Because I am, I think to the extent that you ever see the women talking. And I don't think you really, I don't think the women even really talk to one another. I guess maybe... Um, yeah, Zoot gives the doctors instructions. No, no, she doesn't. Yeah, she it's... just talks to Galahad about them. Right. I think at least I think she might tell them to leave or something like that at some point. But to the extent I think that she does say anything addressed directly to them, it's very clearly in the context of this is what we should be doing in relation to this man. Yeah, that we have here. Although there is that part where Zoot turns to the camera and addresses the audience. <laughs> yes. So she says something like, should we have cut this bit? I'm so glad we didn't. <laughs> All right, Sarah, get on with it. <laughs> get on with it. So uh, as he is about to succumb, he is then finally rescued by Lancelot uh, and is kind of dragged away yelling, no, I'm fine. I can handle it. I was just about to figure it out. And, uh, you know, Lancelot says, oh, no, you're in grave peril. And, uh, you know, he said, uh, Galahad says, I could handle just a little bit of peril. And Lancelot goes, no, it's unhealthy. Uh, At which point then Galahad says, I bet you're gay. And Lancelot goes, no, I'm not, with a little bit of a pause. Yep. Which is a really interesting scene. And again, one that from a 21st century perspective struck me as sort of odd in terms of there being this kind of weird little gay joke snuck in. Mm-hmm. It's worth keeping in mind, of course, that Graham Chapman himself is gay, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So obviously, you know, one of the people who's very much responsible for this. And uh, so even though it doesn't quite seem like it holds up, especially knowing that the whole, you know, the example, these kind of references don't seem quite as, I don't know, mean-spirited as some other kind yeah. of gay panic jokes that I've seen. Yeah. But it is a kind of odd exchange still. Absolutely. And uh, it'll it'll lead into the next yes. episode, uh, which is the tale of Sir Lancelot. So maybe we can come back to that. We'll get to the tale of Sir Lancelot in a second. Uh, yeah. First, we, we have uh, scene 24. As, yes, uh, it is the famous scene 24. To, yes. Uh, and we have Arthur and Bedivere, who meet an old man who tells him about an enchanter who knows a cave. Behind the cave lies the gorge of eternal peril and the bridge of death which may or may not lead to the grail. And he then mysteriously disappears. They continue on their way and run into the next uh, kind of bizarre apparition, which is the knights who say me. 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 It's just fun. It is fun to say me. I could see starting to say me to old women, <laughs> as, as they do in, the next, in their later scene. The knights who say me command them to, uh, a bit, to go and fetch them a shrubbery. A shrubbery. Yes. A nice one. <laughs> and there are some instructions for how nice the shrubbery should be, but not too nice. We then move back to the tale of Sir Lancelot, which begins with more queer coding, I would say, with Prince Herbert. Yes. Well, it begins with another animation and oh, yes. title card telling us that this is the tale of Sir Lancelot. This one from another 
uh, style of medieval art. It's more Celtic, more early medieval, more insular of the islands, Mm -hmm. um, evocative of the Book of Kells, Mm -hmm. um, with a particularly beautiful kind of gemmed eagle figure Mm -hmm. that uh, I don't know where it's from, but I would really like to. We go to Swamp Castle. Mm -hmm. Where we have the King of Swamp Castle and his son, Prince Herbert, who just wants to sing. And we have a bunch of like abortive efforts where he like starts to break into song and there's like a big like kind of, you know, rousing musical cue. And then his father goes, stop that, stop that. And it all cuts off. Yes. And I love the characterization of these two characters, their costuming, their makeup. It's just so great at creating these two characters. Prince Herbert is played by Terry Jones, and he's like yeah. made up very pale. I'm not sure if that's a, a false mole or or if it's just kind of <laughs> exaggerated on right. his face. He's made to look very thin with these sunken cheeks and he's wearing a blonde wig just looks like very washed out and kind of sickly yeah and his dad played by Michael Palin is wearing this hideous bald cap with straggly hair (laughs) around it and this massive like cope around his shoulders of fur just like a mass of fur (laughs) and can only imagine how much that must smell in yes. the clear swamp air. Oh, God. That fur cape <laughs> that he's wearing. That sounds so unpleasant. <laughs> There's also this, like, really interesting disjunct between the two in that the father, I would say, sees himself as a very kind of traditional example of lordly masculinity. Mm-hmm. And the son is uh, presented, in addition to being very sickly, as also being uh, very effeminate. Yes, um, yeah, and Terry Jones plays him with a very high voice. Yeah, the very high voice. His father accidentally, uh, there, so there's a bit where he accidentally calls his father mother, but then uh, the father accidentally calls him Alice. <laughs> Some sort of interesting things going on here. Yes, well, there doesn't seem to be a mother. Yes, uh, I'm surprised. Maybe once again, are not doing great on women. Yeah. And Herbert is about to be forced to marry a princess who has huge tracts of land. Uh, which is uh, intended to have a double meaning since there's first the kind of, you know, he first tell, oh, she's got huge shocks of land. You know, this is great. It's a great marriage. And then he says, I don't want to marry her. And he says, you know, oh, she's rich. She's loved. She's beautiful. She has huge. And he kind of pauses and goes tracts of land and then kind of makes a bosom motion in front of himself. (laughs) Yes. The recognizable (laughs) bosom motion. Yes. I'm not really. Language. I'm not really sure how to express what it is in a visual medium yeah. <laughs> or in a non-visual medium. Uh, we also have a good kind of absurdist bit with the guards, mm-hmm. who uh, have you know a couple of minutes of kind of failing to understand his instructions to stay in the room and not let the prince leave mm-hmm. until the king comes, until his father comes and gets him. And you know, for us first, you're like, okay, if anyone comes, gets him. It's okay, no, just me. And then there's the point they like try to follow him out. And to add um, even more to the the playing with masculinity or the threats to masculinity in this scene, all of the guards of the castle are festooned with flowers and ribbon and tool yes. for the wedding. So they're they're dressed up in their kind of dingy armor with their spears, but they've also got bright pink and white flowers all over them. Right, which is a really interesting touch. Herbert, because the guards are so incompetent, is able to write a note, attach it to an arrow, and then shoot it out the window (laughs) while they just kind of smile and nod at him, which is a touch that I really like. The arrow then shoots Lancelot's servant Concord in the chest. Yes, poor Concord. (laughs) 
poor Concord, especially because so then, you know, Lancelot goes Concord, you know, after he reads the note and sees that, you know, someone, the gender is not specified, um, although he assumes a woman or claims to assume a woman Mm -hmm. and uh, says to sweet Concord, it says uh, to Concord, oh, sweet Concord, you will not have died in vain. At which point we have a pretty good call book where he says, actually, I'm I'm not dead. Uh, Oh, has not been mortally wounded in vain. Actually, I'm feeling much better. <laughs> and Port and Concord does, in fact, uh, arise eventually. But Lancelot, for the time being, runs off without him. And we then have another scene of kind of, uh, oh, first there's a kind of running toward the castle scene where there's yes. this kind of dramatic music and then you, and you kind of see him running and then it turns out that for like three times it kind of goes and he hasn't apparently gotten any closer to the castle. Yeah, this is actually um, a filmic depiction of my experience of finishing my dissertation. <laughs> <laughs> You think you get closer, but you're not. (laughs) I'm I'm feeling that, uh, especially in the kind of revising the dissertation into a book moment that I'm currently in. Uh, That that sounds about right. Yep. So he finally arrives, at which point we have uh, a kind of pretty big description, a depiction of a kind of parodic medieval violence, where he just kind of jumps into the castle and uh, kind of freely murders a lot of people. (laughs) Until finally arriving upstairs to find Herbert. And is very surprised when Herbert turns out to be, in fact, a man, which seems to be a little bit on of a riff on the kind of gay joke about Lancelot's sexual orientation that we saw earlier. So I was delighted to learn in my Wikipedia, in the Wikipedia phase of my research uh-huh. for this, that in Spamalot, the Broadway adaptation of Monty Python and the Holy Grail, Lancelot and Herbert actually end up together. Which is delightful. Like, yeah. that's very nice. It's like, oh, this is this is the 20th, 21st century. They can just actually be gay. Yeah. And that's a much nicer ending than the ending we have here, where the father essentially decides he wants to accept the rather masculine Lancelot as his alternative son mm-hmm. and uh, basically throws Herbert out a window. Yeah. Sort of all but throws Herbert out a window, uh, which is interesting because that's actually how Edward the First murders his son's, uh, uh, you know, apparent boyfriend in uh, Braveheart is by throwing him out a window. <laughs> <laughs> so he throws Herbert out the window and then kind of brings Lancelot downstairs. Everyone's initially very upset since, among others, he seems to have killed the bride's father. Only it turns out he has not killed the bride's father. <laughs> The um, Swamp King's plan seems to be that he's going to basically adopt Lancelot as a son, marry him to uh, Princess Lucky, uh, that is, which is apparently her name, so she does actually mm-hmm. have a name. Yes. No lines, but a name. <laughs> yes, and uh, kind of treat her as her adopted daughter and therefore kind of, pres- you know, have a kind of nice plan for these, you know, appropriate masculine and feminine couple to inherit his lands. Uh, there's a brief bit where the father is going, you know, I'm not dead, I'm feeling much better. And then one of his guards goes and kills him. (laughs) So he, you know, thinks he's maybe about to pull this off. um, uh, And then Herbert is then rescued by Concord and brought back in. Yes, Um, Concord carries him in in his arms. Yes, yes. uh, Which is another very, another scene that very much is kind of a feminizing the figure Mm -hmm. of Herbert, who, you know, seems kind of very small and damsel like Mm -hmm. in this scene. So uh, we, he comes in and uh, he, we actually do finally have the, uh, what looks like the beginning of a, of him finally getting to sing. 
Yes, uh, that promised no promised a musical yeah. number. Yes, we are finally promised a musical number, but sadly we do not get the full musical number as Lancelot and Concord escape in the midst of, <laughs> as it's beginning. We then go back to Arthur and Bedivere, who are trying to obtain the shrubbery for the knights of the knights who say knee, which initially they start to do by uh, basically torturing an old woman uh, by yelling knee at her. Yes. Compromising their morals. Compromising their morals. And, uh, you know, and he's supposed to be a king. Come on. Yes. <clears throat> the shame. Yes, such a shame. They uh, run into a man who is uh, quite disappointed in them and the fact that, you know, what is this world coming to that knights are wandering around saying neat to innocent old ladies. And uh, then, uh, you know, it turns out that he is, in fact, Roger the Shrubber. And so they are able to get from him a shrubbery. <laughs> which they bring back. Uh, however, the knights then request a second shrubbery with a lot of specific instructions about the what the shrubbery is supposed to look like and how the shrubbery is supposed to be arranged in relation to the original shrubbery. Yes. And then also ask him to cut, ask them to, when they return, cut down a tree with a herring. So they obviously are like, oh, this is ridiculous. We can't do it. And in the course of protesting, land on the fact that the word it is the one of the words that the knights who say knee cannot hear. Yes. And yes, therefore are able to uh, kind of to defeat them essentially by accident. Um, and there's actually a kind of parodic, you know, bit as well here where, you know, they're kind of sometimes saying it and sometimes saying not, but it takes them a very long time to figure out what the word is that they've actually said, which does it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And then at some point, one of the knights who say me actually says and goes, oh, God, I said it. I said it again. <laughs> and uh, in the midst of this, we also uh, they are reunited with Sir Robin, uh, who, as his minstrels inform them, has bravely ran away. And I think at some point they ask him, are you like going back, turning back from the quest and heading back to Camelot? And the minstrels are like, he's bravely running away. <laughs> So we have the reunification of the party. Um, they also, I guess, find at this point Lancelot and Galahad as well, right? Do we actually yes. see that? We see that in the animation. So we have yes, another right. animated scene bridging these two kind of distinct acts within the movie. The party gets united and and we have a kind of new momentum towards the grail quest. So in this animation, the party animated rides through a landscape that is framed with medieval gothic manuscript border illuminations. We see the seasons of a year passing, uh, not quite in the right order. They're (laughs) illustrated by a shepherd and a sheep, the same ones I think that we see in the title animation. So Gilliam is kind of um, recycling some of his models, using them in different ways. And I think it's in this animation too that Sir Robin's minstrels get eaten. (laughs) during yes. the long winter. <laughs> they were forced to eat Robin's minstrels and there was much rejoicing, <laughs> which is delightful, although I'm a little sad for the loss of Robin's <laughs> minstrels, <laughs> especially because there is a lot of brave running away in subsequent scenes yes. that I'm sure they would have had a lot to say about. <laughs> I think they could have helped. So they, uh, after you know the passage of seasons, they eventually continue on their journey and finally found the enchanter that the old man pointed them to, who is called Tim. Tim directs them to go to a cave of Kerbanog, where they will have to defeat its dreaded monster, who turns out to be a little white rabbit. Mm-hmm. We have a couple of uh, you know we have a couple of minutes of dialogue of them all you know basically making fun of him for this rabbit you know for being so afraid about this rabbit. <laughs> 
And then finally send somebody and say, you know, all right, just go, go kill the dumb rabbit so he'll shut up, basically. Uh, and the rabbit rips his head off. Yep, quite literally. The bunch of them then kind of go in after them <laughs> and try to defeat the rabbit. At, uh, you know, and the rabbit kills uh, several of them. Uh, rest in peace, I believe it's uh, Boars, Gawain, and Ector uh, did not make it. Uh, they were they were lost to the rabbit. Yeah, and in the melee, it's great. You can see the uh, the wire along which the rabbit puppet is traveling. <laughs> right. Um, and there's, there's a scene where you can just like fully see that it's a puppet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they bravely run away um, and regroup it to try to come up with a plan. And the idea that eventually occurs to them is the holy hand grenade of Antioch. Yes. So which is something that looks uh, like the traditional kind of orb with a cross on top of it that you often see Jesus carrying in a number of medieval paintings, <laughs> which uh, Brother Maynard brings forth. And in order to give them instructions for how to use it, recites a passage from the Book of Armaments. Yes. <laughs> which is a amazing Bible parody. So good. Including, I really like that there's a, like, at some point, the uh, Brother Maynard tells the monk, the other monk who's actually reading it to, you know, skip a bit, uh, where he's literally just, like, kind of listing food items that, because they're, like, having a banquet in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> Which is fantastic and so typical of the Bible that there are just these weird long lists that you're kind of reading and at some point are like, why am I reading this? Why? <laughs> <laughs> And then finally, the uh, kind of lengthy instructions on how to properly count to three, um, which also has a kind of elaboration, seems deeply unnecessary, which is very biblical as well. You shall not count to two, nor four. Five is straight off. And then finally, the instructions, love it toward thy foe, who being naughty in my sight, shall snuff it. Which is amazing. The, uh, the hand grenade explosion does kill the rabbit, although uh, it also, as we see in a cutscene, alerts the police to their current presence. Yes, they'd made it as far as the shrubberies. Yes. <laughs> so they were on their trail. Yeah, they, they've been really following them quite successfully the whole time. But I guess did not catch up in that year and a half uh, where they uh, were yeah. sitting in one this place. This is a cold case by now. I know. It's like, and I think it really is. It's probably the hand grenade. That really uh, kind of gets them to, uh, to move on. So they, uh, they find an inscription, uh, which says it's supposed to be from Joseph of Arimathea. I actually couldn't quite make out the inscription well enough to say anything about what yeah. the, uh, the writing. Well, it, it certainly wasn't in um, Latin letters. Uh, they yeah. identified the language as Aramaic. I don't know what Aramaic looks like. So I actually didn't quite catch it, what the inscription looked like. Aramaic is basically in terms of the character is the same as Hebrew, if you find that helpful. Yeah, I guess it it could have been Aramaic, but like a very rustic inscription. Yeah. It looked more runic to me. Yeah, but... I will have to go back and look as well yeah. and see if I can pause and uh, try to figure out, since I do read Aramaic, if there's anything. Yes. Uh, I mean, cause, and because it's the same um, alphabet as Hebrew, because Hebrew actually took its uh, the alphabet that it now uses and has used for centuries. It actually is taken from what used to originally be the Babylonian Aramaic alphabet. Mm. Well, and in the movie, um, none of the knights could read it, but they consulted yeah. a specialist. They consulted yes. Brother Maynard. Yeah. Um, and... It is the the clerics who may have had that kind of specialized uh, language knowledge that Sarah has today. Yes, especially, uh, well, although he had been most likely to have it, I would say, if he'd been uh, Franciscan or Dominican. Mm. 
are uh, the big groups of, uh, you know, clerics who are actually really uh, involved in really trying to learn some Aramaic in terms of being able to, they actually wanted to be able to read the Talmud to find out if Jews were saying nasty things about Jesus in it. But in general, learning various Semitic languages, uh, mostly as a way to uh, promote convert, to uh, kind of be able to promote conversion and be able to uh, read Jewish and Muslim texts and be able to kind of use them against real life Jews and Muslims in various ways. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, Brother Maynard, the original Christian Hebraist. <laughs> so yes, the inscription tells them to go to the castle of Arg. And they have a kind of debate about whether that's actually what it says, or if he just uh, kind of, you know, died in the middle of writing it. Uh, but you know, Which if anyone said Arg, he would have, uh, somebody actually comments on that, that, oh, but he wouldn't have, he wouldn't have written Arg. He would have just said Arg. <laughs> We then have another kind of meta scene where there's this uh, kind of 70s style animated monster, animated kind of alien-esque monster, which appears and is chasing them around for a while. And they are saved by the fact that the animator suffers a heart attack. Yep. And the monster then just completely uh, kind of blinks out of existence. Also, I just want to note in general that throughout a number of these scenes, we have a bunch of people just literally yelling as they're, you know, shocked or afraid. They just yell, Jesus Christ! (laughs) (laughs) Which is a nice bit of uh, taking the Lord's name in vain from a uh, Christian perspective that I enjoy. (laughs) They then, based on these uh, instructions, they do in fact kind of manage to get through the cave. And toward the Bridge of Death, the bridge that is crossing the Gorge of Eternal Peril. Mm -hmm. And it is guarded by the old man, famously from scene 24. (laughs) So the old man has various questions to ask them. The first, so Lancelot kind of goes first and gets very easy questions. He goes, what is your name? What is your quest to find the Holy Grail? And what is your favorite color? I don't remember which is what is his favorite color. Um, I believe it's blue. Yeah, but he he knows what his favorite color is. Yeah. So he answers all the questions and then is able to just kind of, you know, happily, you know, go across. Easily across the bridge of death. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Robin is then uh, the brave Robin, the not quite so brave as Sir Lancelot, (laughs) is emboldened by Lancelot's success and goes forth and is, you know, very jaunty and confident. You know, ask the same, what is your name? What is your quest? And then finally, the last question is, and what is the capital of Assyria? <laughs> and he says, I don't know that. And so then, you know, yells, ah, and it says he is thrown off the bridge into the Gorge of Eternal Peril. Alas, Sir Robin. <laughs> Poor Sir Robin. It probably is right that your average medieval knight would not have known what the capital of Assyria was, nor was Assyria really like a country. Yeah, no. At this point. So certainly they would not have had any idea. Yeah. I'm sure they would not have known what the capital was of the historic Assyrian Empire, which is fair. He then continues. Now they're a little bit more wary. I guess Galahad goes next. And uh, at first it seems like he's lucky in that he gets uh, the same questions Lancelot got. But he changes his mind in the middle about what his favorite color is. (laughs) I can't remember what the the colors are, but it's something like, you know, yellow, wait, no, red. And then uh, is kind of thrown up off into the gorge of eternal peril because he incorrectly answered the question about what his favorite color was. Then Arthur goes next. And uh, the trick question that he ends up getting is a callback to way in the beginning of the movie, asking him about the velocity of a swallow. To which he responds, African or European. And the old man guarding the bridge says, I don't know that. And then is promptly for his failure to answer the question thrown off the bridge. 
I also like that Bedivere at this point asks uh, asks Arthur, how do you know so much about swallows? And Arthur says, oh, there are just some things that as a king you have to know. Yes. <laughs> Which is great, since swallows are not in the normal wheelhouse of your average medieval king. <laughs> so then at this point actually is the intermission, right? Before yes. the cross? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, we're like 90% of the way through the movie. Time for an intermission. Yes, with kind of like bright colors flashing across the screen that reads intermission and uh, music in the background, which my close captioning described as as up-tempo organ music. (laughs) My partner described it as jaunty. Yeah, yeah, there you go. We then resume. Arthur and Bedivere cross the bridge. They're calling out and looking for Lancelot and cannot find him because he has in fact been arrested. Mm -hmm. He's being patted down by a police car. Uh huh, and so uh, eventually a kind of ship uh, comes before them. It's uh, it's sort of Viking esque. Yeah, well, and it's um, it's like a little bit more appropriate. We'll talk about the the modern trend in Arthurian movies to set them earlier in the Middle Ages. Right, um, the ship it's... is more tenth century than a lot of other things in this movie. Yeah, which is the year it ostensibly takes place. But yeah, it's this low set ship with a tall prow with a dragon head finial on the end of it, which I think today just looks vaguely medieval yeah. to people. Yeah, I think that's probably the, the assumption people make. I think that's what they think a medieval ship looks like. Yeah. They take the ship. The ship brings them, in fact, to the castle of Arg. But it turns out that the French are there. <laughs> <laughs> it turns out they really had already got one. <laughs> And also that we went in a very large circle. <laughs> this goes about as well as pre- as expected based on previous encounters. More animals are harmed yes. very possibly in the making of this film. <laughs> and uh, they decide, okay, we're going to have, you know, mount a full attack to recover the grail from uh, the French. Yes, with an army that was apparently just waiting Yes, uh, and this is the first we have seen of this army with the exception of one bit where uh, when you have various people from various scenes, often future scenes, yelling, get on with it! One of them is the army uh, yelling en masse, get on with it! (laughs) And otherwise, that is the first we have seen of this kind of suddenly materialized army. So they're about to kind of lead the army into an attack. At which point, a bunch of police cars drive up and arrest everyone. The end. (laughs) The end. (laughs) With further up-tempo organ music. Yes. Over a dark screen for, like, a long time. (laughs) Yes. We have an abrupt ending in which they have not quite found the grail. And yes, the movie has come to an end. So uh, we will discuss that ending, among a number of other things, in our next section, Vera et Falso, or True and False, where we talk about what this movie got right and what it got wrong. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to start out by wanting to talk about a few things in terms of things that they got wrong in terms of the general claim made at the beginning of the movie that this is a movie that takes place in the year 932 AD, specifically. I do wonder where they got that. Date. It's a very oddly chosen date. Yeah. The big reason it's a very oddly chosen date is that 
if there were a historical King Arthur, so if you were actually going to make a film, which is what kind of some of the recent trends are, attempting to place Arthur in a historical setting that would have made sense for him based on the very little that, you know, we can kind of parse out about who he might have been had he, if he was a real figure, would definitely put him in around the kind of sixth, maybe like late fifth or early sixth century. Yeah. So that's when he would have been and when it might make sense to place a historical Arthur. We know a decent amount of what's happening in 10th century Britain and are quite clear on the fact that what is happening is not King Arthur. Right. And then if we're thinking about Arthurian literature, um, the first written references to Arthur come in the 11th century. Yes. Maybe as early as the 10th. Maybe but really pick up in the 12th and 13th century with um, verse and prose accounts in English and French and into the 14th and 15th century with kind of rewritings of these accounts. But the the early 10th century is, is a real dead zone for... Arthurian references. Yes, it's in many ways the oddest possible place to locate a story about King Arthur. It also very much highlights the fact, by attempting to place it in the 10th century, that a lot of the medieval references, which themselves have varying levels of accuracy, Mm -hmm. come from quite a bit later. Mm -hmm. So the costuming looks basically 13th century, as well as basically ridiculous. Yes. The bring out your dead scene has a pretty clear reference to the Black Plague, with, of course, the big Black Plague epidemic uh, being at first in 1348 and then subsequent epidemics, you know, over the course of the 14th century and beyond. Mm-hmm. With the Black Plague as well, I wanted to note, so you have this figure who is introduced to is the body collector. Uh, who's going around and yelling, bring out your dead. And the reason this guy especially wants to drop his father off a little bit early is because the body collector's not coming back until Thursday. Mm-hmm. Although there were people who worked as body collectors, ordinary medieval people were not actually willing to wait four days of having a plague-ridden corpse in their house. And in fact, just citizens in general would dispose of the bodies of their own family members and neighbors if it proved necessary. And if they, you know, had somebody who had died, they would, you know, pretty much immediately take it upon themselves to get this corpse out of their home and, you know, probably usually bury it in a mass grave. Mm-hmm. I also just wanted uh, to bring in a brief description of what that actually looked like from a 14th century Florentine chronicle because it is one of the grossest descriptions I've ever heard. All the citizens did little else except to carry dead bodies to be buried. At every church, they dug deep pits down to the water table, and thus those who were poor who died during the night were bundled up quickly and thrown into the pit. In the morning, when a large number of bodies were found in the pit, they took some earth and shoveled it down on top of them, and later others were placed on top of them, and then another layer of earth. Just as one makes lasagna with layers of pasta and cheese. Oh, no. (laughs) The lasagna comparison is one of the most unfortunate descriptions I have ever read. And I'm a little worried I can never eat lasagna again now. Oh, no. Ew. In the wake of the plague, we also see the rise of these movements of flagellant monks. uh, So monks who are uh, essentially practicing self-abuse as a form of penance. 
so that is also something that is referenced in the movie, but again, something that's really drawing on the 14th century. And the 15th century. Yeah, the 14th and the 15th, right? So, you know, continuing even later. The same, I would say, is also true of uh, the kind of references to the French and specifically what the French-English rivalry looks like. Mm -hmm. It very much seems to me like something that is supposed to be a callback in particular to the Hundred Years' War. Mm Mm-hmm. And to that kind of sort of French-English siege warfare that's happening with, you know, the English soldiers who are in France. Right. But here displaced to England. Right. But with, you know, people who are French and being the ones who are inside the castles. Yeah. So uh, that was a uh, kind of callback that, again, is, uh, you know, 14th and 15th century in terms of when the Hundred Years' War takes place. The uh, anarchist commune of peasants obviously is drawing on plenty of kind of modern communist languages, but also is pointing in a lot of significant ways to the peasant revolts of the 14th and 15th centuries. Mm -hmm. And in fact, uh, during the peasants revolt in England in the late 14th century, there were peasants who advocated specifically for independent village communities that would have some modicum of Mm self-rule. And the kind of talking about the violence inherent in the system uh, very much reminds me of uh, during the Catalan peasants revolt in the 15th century, that they very much refer to the Lord's practices in various ways as the mal's usus, the bad customs, mm. and are very much, you know, invested in talking about this kind of violence. Yeah. So that's something that, you know, has a place in the medieval world, but a much later medieval world than the one that the movie is uh, ostensibly set in. I also, by the way, in terms of the flagellant monks, uh, did actually look up what uh, the line uh, Pia Jesu Domini Dona Eis Requiem is from. Oh, great. Which is, uh, you know, something like, you know, merciful uh, Jesus, O Lord, uh, give us peace. It comes from a liturgical sequence known as the Dies Irae, which could, according to some, maybe be as old as the 7th century, but mo- but can't be securely dated any earlier than the 13th. Hmm. And then the other thing that I wanted to note that points later, and perhaps even in particular points beyond the Middle Ages, is uh, the anxiety about witches. Yeah. Since, uh, you know, there were very occasional uh, prosecutions of people for witchcraft in the medieval world, but the witch craze really didn't take off until at the earliest, about the late, like the late 15th century, with the publication of books like the Malleus Maleficarum, the Hammer of Witches, literally. And uh, it's really the um, kind of large-scale persecution and execution of women and a few men accused of witchcraft is really primarily an early modern phenomenon rather than a medieval one. Um, Really the kind of heyday of witch persecution is really the 16th and 17th centuries. Yeah. But saying the enlightenment practice of witch burning doesn't have the same ring as the medieval practice of witch burning. Exactly. Uh, And of course, you know, people want to pretend that the, yeah, people want to pretend that the Renaissance and the Enlightenment are periods of, uh, you know, where all of a sudden everyone is very, you know, enlightened Enlightened. and has abandoned their medieval views. Whereas in fact, uh, you know, my big thing that I am very invested in is that the early modern period, if anything, has a great deal of continuity. And also to the extent that there is change, a lot of that is arguably changed toward a heightening of religious persecution Mm -hmm. and increased efforts to enforce a uh, very restrictive set of gender norms, increased uh, prosecution or persecution of people who are kind of developing, you know, kind of early scientific ideas. So really, you know, we are not seeing a loss of quote unquote medieval ideas. 
as yeah. we move into early modernity. Yeah. My other note about witches in particular is that although they are, it's uh, very central to this scene that the witches are going to be burned. Most of the time, in fact, witches instead would have been hanged. Mm. But I guess that's harder to figure out what to then weigh, because what else do you hang? Yeah. <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> you hang curtains. So uh, <laughs> does the witch weigh more or less than curtains? Um, so yes, that would not have worked for the scene quite as well, uh, but it would have been more accurate. Heresy is the big, the big crime that gets that gets burning. Mm. So a lot of what we see is pointing very much to a later middle, uh, medieval period, and as I said, as you know, some of it is then more accurate than other bits to that period. But there is, in some ways, something to be said for that. Uh, in that uh, the you know heyday of Arthurian literature is uh, the kind of tw- uh, you know the kind of twelfth, thirteenth century and beyond. Yeah. And medieval people aren't really interested in making the Arthurian world look like a sixth century world. Yeah. Or or indeed the world of the past look yeah. like it's of the past. When medieval people picture the world of the past, whether it's a world of history or legend or the Bible, religious history, sacred history. It's updated. It's uh, showing people in contemporary clothing and contemporary settings with contemporary architecture around them. There's a a real desire to see the past as something that has come alive and something that's familiar. Yeah. And uh, so I, I appreciate that aspect of the Monty Python, Arthur story, that way that it really doesn't, it doesn't stick to a time. It jumps around and it's mainly kind of late medieval because if we're thinking about what we think about when we think about the Middle Ages, it's usually that. And it also comes from what this movie made in the mid-70s was itself parodying before this trend of setting Arthurian movies in the so-called historic Arthur period. Arthur movies and tales were generally set in the 12th or the 13th or the 14th or the 15th century or some combination of this kind of generalized late medieval moment because that's when the stories come from and that's the the time that people that 19th and 20th century adapters were really associating with them. So in uh, in grounding the movie largely there in its visual and material culture, it allows it to take on to parody these other uh, later interpretations of the Arthur legend, um, particularly Camelot, the musical. Yeah, and I do think that there is a, a lot to be said for that choice in a certain way. In, um, in a certain way that I kind of prefer in a lot of ways the Arthurian adaptations that kind of draw on the very much legendary and imagined world of Arthurian literature, mm-hmm. rather than this kind of gritty faux realism that you see in a lot of the more recent Arthurian epics. Yeah. So yeah, this this and Merlin uh, might <laughs> thus far be uh, my favorite Arthurian adaptations that have been covered on this podcast. So I also appreciated in the movie um, how much of a presence religion and specifically Christianity yes. had in the world. And with the animation scenes in particular, the way that it seems like this is a world that uh, 
isn't wholly divided from a mystical world. This is a world where God can appear. This is a world where, um, in one of the animation scenes that we didn't talk about, where um, the sun and clouds jumping on the earth can create... Yes, and there's a monk who's writing something yeah. down and kind of comes out to yell at them and tell them yeah. to go back where they belong. A, a kind of 17th or 18th even century figure. Yeah. Um, not medieval at yeah. all. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, this is this is a, a magical world where the, the concepts of magic and religion are, are themselves deeply connected. They're not separate. Yeah. And so I liked all of the places where where the narrative and the characters and the costuming brought religion into the story. Arthur kneels to pray after he cuts off the Black Knight's arms. The flagellants weave in and out of the narrative. And, of course, Brother Maynard and the Holy Hand Grenade as, as an indispensable part of the retinue. Right, that there's actually somebody who's, uh, you know, there who is a religious professional who has, a, you know, a essentially a Bible more or less with him, mm-hmm. uh, so who is able to kind of recite sacred scriptures on command. Right. And the Bible is seen as a useful thing. Yes, that it actually is supposed to give direction to your life, uh, mm-hmm. perhaps in this case in an even more literal sense uh, than <laughs> one might imagine. I do think that's a good point earlier as well that you made about the presence, the very real presence of God, that they actually genuinely believe that God spoke to them and sent them on this quest. And that is what we see in the film is God doing that. That, you know, this is a world where a lot of people actually believed that, that God had given them sacred missions in some ways. And then there's the structure of the movie itself, the narrative structure. It actually kind of takes a lot of brain work to pick apart the narrative structure because it's so picaresque. It's kind of random. But this is very much like the epic romances of the late Middle Ages. So in its structure, it's drawing on its source material. And that's even down to the way that it ends. This movie doesn't have a real ending. And this is really similar to a lot of late medieval literature, particularly one of the literary sources of, for this material, Chrétien de Troyes' Percival, the story of the Grail. Chrétien de Troyes is a 12th century French poet who is yeah. kind of the leading figure of Arthurian literature on the French side of things. And Percival was his last romance, and it was left unfinished, Mm -hmm. possibly because he died. Another one of his works, uh, his Lancelot story, was also, um, he didn't finish it, someone else finished it for him. So (laughs) there's a lot of kind of running out of steam, (laughs) or just (laughs) running out of time (laughs) in medieval authors' works. There's another text, uh, um one of the most popular romances of the Middle Ages, The Romance of the Rose, also famously left unfinished. Its first author, Guillaume de Lory, wrote about 4,000 lines Mm -hmm. in 1230. It was unfinished, but so popular that another poet in the 1270s named Jean de Mun finished it for him, adding something like 12,000 more lines. Yeah. But this kind of, this, this trope of unfinished works is a very medieval thing and here we have it in the movie too 
Right. And the kind of abrupt ending actually fits in a lot of ways. Yeah. And of course, I think it is interesting in terms of, uh, you know, thinking about how this um, particular film depicts the Middle Ages that Terry Jones had a degree in history mm-hmm. and went on to uh, basically become a medieval historian. Yeah. I don't think he ever got a PhD. I don't think. I don't think so. But, you know, he has published a number of books that uh, I think are, you know, in the popular history realm, but fairly well regarded. Yeah. yeah. About Chaucer in particular. Yeah. Who murdered Chaucer is the uh, the best known, which, which I think he co-authored with someone. Yeah. He also had a, a series, a television series um, in 2004 called Terry Jones Medieval Lives. It's actually quite good. I've heard of it. I've never actually seen it. Yeah. It's yeah. really engaging. Yeah. It also has a woman problem, but... Yeah. So I assume it's the lives of various men. Yeah. And then the damsel. Oh, dear. Yeah. (laughs) So uh, maybe not great on certain aspects of social history. Yeah. uh, Like many medieval films. But yeah, I mean, this is actually created, though, in part by somebody who had a real interest in the medieval world. Mm -hmm. And I think that really shows through in a lot of ways um, that even though there are, you know, a number of... uh, I would say deliberate and perhaps less deliberate anachronisms. Yes. That uh, clearly having this have connections to a medieval reality is something that they thought about. Yeah. And that actually should, I think, be a good lead into our next segment, Historia at Veritas, where we talk about a real historical figure, event, or phenomenon related to the piece of media that we discuss. And today, I am fortunate enough to be able to put Maeve completely in charge for this (laughs) section as an art historian to talk about her expertise in medieval marginalia and how it relates to this film. Yes, I was so excited to talk about this movie because this movie draws so much from a particular area of medieval art um, and draws really closely from it too. And that that area is something that we call marginalia. Um, So we've talked about it already in the way that Terry Gilliam, the animator, pulls from uh, has pulled from medieval sources for things like the book of the film and the animations. Um, the animations are coming from medieval sources. The book of the film, they, they created an actual book. I love that touch. Yeah. For the animations, Gilliam drew inspiration from actual medieval books and and in many cases actual images, as we've seen, from from medieval books. And when we're talking about medieval books... We're talking about manuscripts. Movable type printing was invented in the West in the mid-15th century. Um, It was used in East Asia much earlier. But in the Middle Ages, books were written by hand. That's what a manuscript is. It's written by hand. Very fancy books were also painted or illuminated. Um, So they're written on parchment, which is prepared prepared animal skin, and then decorated with tempera paint and gold leaf. And uh, these create really beautiful paintings. Painting in the Middle Ages was not on canvas, not on panel, it was in books. And uh, books being things that you close and protect and put on a shelf, they also survive really well. So this is, books are a place where we can see a kind of unmediated view of medieval visual culture, one aspect of it anyway. One trend in book illumination in the 13th and 14th century, particularly in modern France, Belgium, and England, is marginalia. 
images in the margins. You can find marginalia in all kinds of books, in secular texts like romances and poems, but also in religious books of all kinds, prayer books um, for lay people or breviaries, missals, the kinds of things that clerics would use. So all of these books, these prayer books, these poems, these romances, they all have a fairly codified iconography or set of images, narrative illustrations or devotional images that directly complement the text. And these images are artists would put in the center of the page in the text block as miniatures or maybe historiated initials, initials with pictures in them. Marginalia occupies a different space of the page. It occupies the margins, the space around the text block. And because it's in this different place, it relates to the text in a different way, and it's less codified. So marginalia has a complex relationship with the center. Uh, it doesn't have to be these codified kind of approved images. It can be anything. It can be surreal. It can be subversive. It can be satirical. And in all of these ways, it's a lot like Monty Python's humor, which yeah. makes this like a really savvy choice for Terry Gilliam. Art historian Michael Camille, who uh, has written a book about um, the margins of medieval art, ultimately argued that for all its subversiveness, marginalia ultimately functioned to uphold the hegemony of the center, um, which is a really interesting thing to maybe put mm -hmm. in dialogue with um, the role of, of this film as a satire, as a social satire, and also yeah. maybe think about all of the things that it, that it upholds. Yeah, I think one of the interesting things then to think about along those lines as well as class thinking about the ways in which this movie comments on a kind of class relationship, which, you know, presents people who are of lower socioeconomic status as less valuable, as more subject to violence, but also kind of reify, it satirizes that, but also kind of reifies it by the mm. only characters that we really, you know, have any investment in a relationship with are male members of the knightly class. Yeah. And uh, of course, it's also something interesting then to think about in relation to the uh, connection between this movie and material culture and particularly book culture. And then of course, books are also objects which primarily would have been made for and owned by fairly wealthy individuals. Yes. I mean, especially when you're talking about these richly illuminated manuscripts, most people could not afford to have that sort of book. Definitely not. And given how much of our stories of Arthur come from these richly illuminated manuscripts, we also have to think about this, this narrative history as itself having a kind of classed history. Yes, but in a lot of ways, the uh, Arthurian legends are very much stories that are kind of by and for yeah. elites. Yeah. So I wanted to talk about one particular example of marginalia. Not one that Gilliam drew on, uh, but one that's actually come up on the podcast before. I think in your episode on the Little Hours, mm -hmm. you made some reference to the uh, kind of semi-famous, maybe infamous penis tree images. Of course. I have a deep um, love for the penis tree. I also, I love the penis tree. And I was listening to that episode and wanting more because I knew there was more. Um, so if you'll indulge me, I want Please. to talk a little bit more about it. Please do. So the penis tree, for one thing, 
is not an isolated image, mm -hmm. but it's one that's part of a series of images in the margins of a medieval book. In fact, a medieval copy of The Romance of the Rose. So these images can be read together as a kind of narrative. And they unfold over a, a series of pages. So there are two images on each page. On the first page, we see a nun uh, leading a bearded man by a leash. The leash is attached to his penis. So she's leading him. Um, and then in the next image, we see the nun again in a tower. And the same bearded man, who's probably a monk or maybe some sort of hermit, is climbing a ladder towards her. So we're seeing uh, some scenes from the, the strange courtship of these two people. Mm -hmm. The next image is the image of the nun picking the penises from the tree and putting them in her little basket. Uh, and this motif of the penis tree also has a, a wider footprint than just this mm -hmm. book. This appears elsewhere. Uh, I think it's been discovered most recently in a 14th century um, wall painting from Italy. Mm -hmm. uh, so there, there are more penis trees to be discovered in the <laughs> Middle Ages. Um, after the nun is picking the penis tree, we see a scene of her embracing the man. This is one set of images. And then a couple of pages later, we see them again. The man or the monk kneels to profess his love. Um, this is a trope of medieval romantic imagery, um, a man kneeling as if in prayer, but he's actually kind of swearing fealty. And the nun is listening to him, but she's also kind of lecturing him. She's got her hand extended with one finger extended. This is like a, let me tell you something. It's gesture. the great reversal of mansplaining. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> But apparently this, uh, this courtship is successful because in the next image, they're standing across from each other and they've both raised up their, uh, their robes. She's actually <laughs> holding, either holding his shoulders or helping him raise his robe, and he's holding his penis in his hand. And then in the final scene, they're having sex on a hill, I guess outside. I think um, a lot of illicit sex happened outside. Yeah, why not? And there's, uh, that's my sense because there's not a lot of privacy in medieval homes. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, you would, your best bet for finding a fairly isolated area if you're having sex with someone you're not supposed to be having sex with is probably on a hill somewhere. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Or in a quiet corner of a church. Right. <laughs> so this is, this is kind of the, the larger series of images that we should put the penis tree in. Mm -hmm. But <laughs> when we're thinking about marginalia, it's it's also important to think about context and to think about the way that these images uh, interact with the other things around them. Mm -hmm. So when we try to interpret these images, we want to think about the historical context and we want to think about the material context and the visual context that we find them in. So if we're thinking about interpretations, we can certainly think about anxieties about women's sexuality, especially yes. among cloistered women. And this larger narrative really reinforces that. We have this nun who is very interested in sex, <laughs> very interested in sex with this other male clerical figure. And this is, of course, something that we talked about a lot on the Little Hours episode is the extent to which that is something that people in the Middle Ages had anxiety about, about the fact that these 
cloistered women who are supposed to be brides of Christ, that their chastity is essentially is essential not only for their own souls, but essentially essential to the kind of integrity of Christendom in some ways, and often is not going quite as chastely as it's supposed to be. Yes. <laughs> and we can see that in the movie in Castle Anthrax as well. Yes. But we should also remember that different people in the Middle Ages might have had different opinions about this uh, and different ways of reading these images. So a priest or a layman may have understood these images in the margins of the Romance of the Rose differently, um, differently from each other. Uh, A layman and a laywoman might have understood them differently. So... uh, we want to remember as we're looking at these images that that there's no one Middle Ages. There's no one medieval mm-hmm. mindset. Yeah. Um, there are lots of different people lead different lives and have different experiences in the Middle Ages that, that they'll each individually bring to looking at images and thinking about texts. And that's my, you can obviously say more about this than I can, but uh, my sense is that that's one of the important, uh, you know, elements of a lot of new scholarship and art history is mm-hmm. that there's a lot more interest in reception of art and the fact that there are different receptions of different works of art and different ways that different groups of people experienced it. Yeah. And it's it's a really exciting way to think about art yeah. too. And, and one that can subvert all sorts of traditional, hierarchical, kind of staid ways of thinking that kind of come down to just thinking about the artist and what the artist intended. But we also don't want to cut the artist out. Right. And I'm going to talk about the artist of these images. Oh, great. In just a moment. But when we're thinking about readers, we also want to think about, and and the audience for these images, we want to think about why why they're actually there, um, Mm -hmm. what they're reading. These images appear next to the text of the Romance of the Rose, which was, as I said before, one of the most popular literary works of the later Middle Ages. It's this epic allegory of love told as a dream vision, so like favorite medieval genre, the dream vision, Mm -hmm. in which a male lover, whose name is Lover, (laughs) sees a beautiful rose and falls in love with her. She's a literal rose. Yep. So he can literally deflower her. Yes. I hate the romance of the rose, by the way. (laughs) It's not subtle. (laughs) So he wants to deflower her, and he spends the rest of the poem pursuing her. And it's kind of unsurprising (laughs) that the poem was left unfinished. (laughs) Yeah. But we we should think about this context, the context of the text, and um, the ways that these images might speak to or even speak back to the text. Images in the margins have the, the capacity to interact with the text in, in many different ways. The Romance of the Roses is, is also a deeply misogynist text. Yes, yes it is. <laughs> in the next century, Christine de Pizan is going to pick it apart. And there's, there's some question of whether these images with this kind of very confident, sexually dominant nun figure, um, if she isn't maybe herself an an earlier feminist or proto-feminist critique because the artist who painted these images is a woman. Really? Yes. Oh, wow. Her name is Jeanne de Montbaston. Mm -hmm. And actually, if you, I'm going to 
post links to this manuscript on the Facebook page. It's been fully digitized by the Bibliothèque Nationale de France. Uh, So you can look at every single page if you want to. On some other pages of the manuscript, again in the margins, are little images of a manuscript workshop. And in these images, we see uh, the scene is kind of set by rails hanging on the walls with pieces of parchment, written Mm -hmm. parchment, drying over them. So books were written unbound and then bound later. So the parchment is drying over the rails. On one side, we see a little figure of a man who is writing. Mm-hmm. on a page. And on the other side, we see a little figure of a woman who is illuminating a page. And this book has been linked to other books with the same hand and the same artistic style that can be connected to a certain Richard de Montbaston, uh, who worked in Paris in his own shop, with his wife, Jeanne. And so in this book, we see Jeanne depicting herself at work as an illuminator and her husband, Richard, as the scribe. After Richard's death, Jeanne continued to work in the shop and is actually recorded as being a libraire or a bookseller. So the the kind of world of book production is kind of complex. There are lots of different roles that people can have with it. The libraire is kind of the, the organizer role. So Uh they're kind of the go-between between between the patron who's paying for the book, commissioning the book, and the artists who are going to make it happen. And people take on lots of different roles at once. Um, Someone who has worked as a libraire might kind of step in as an illuminator or a scribe Mm -hmm. for another libraire's job. The the Paris book world was very close-knit. And these were family businesses, passed down from parents to children, but also kind of held up by the whole family, by men and women alike. Mm-hmm. And that's very common in a number of economic sectors that you have these businesses where husbands and wives are working together and often in, you know, similar to one being the scribe, one being the illuminator, you have similar situations where they're playing a kind of complementary business roles. Yeah. And another thing to, to reinforce about this is that these, these artists, this book was made within a commercial workshop. This was not made by monks. The, the model of book production in the monastery is one that's most appropriate to the earlier Middle Ages. But by the 13th century, uh, book production is almost completely commercialized. It's done in the cities. It's kind of part of the urbanization of Mm -hmm. medieval Europe. And these commercial workshops produce all kinds of books. Uh, They produce secular works like The Romance of the Rose, but they also produce religious works like The Lives of the Saints and Mm -hmm. personal prayer books. So these artists are, are working on lots of different kinds of books at once. And um, we see them taking kind of similar approaches to them, which is one reason why we can find marginalia in all of these different kinds of books, because they're made by the same people, and largely for the same people, for the nobility, whether they're lay nobility or um, in the clergy or monastic orders, they 
all share this the same visual culture, uh, these same tastes. They all want to be taste makers. Mm-hmm. So whatever book they're they're making, they want to express their taste. But in the margins, we also see perhaps an opportunity for artists to express their tastes, their views, their interests, their opinions. So it's a yeah. it's a very exciting area to study. Yes, absolutely. It's also exciting today because uh, today manuscripts and marginalia are more accessible than ever with so many manuscripts being digitized. Mm-hmm. In the 1970s, when Terry Gilliam was looking for medieval sources, he was not looking at the books themselves. But right. interestingly, he was looking at a work of scholarship. A, hmm. a kind of foundational work of scholarship for the study of uh, manuscript marginalia, which is Lillian M.C. Randall's Images in the Margins of Gothic hmm. Manuscripts from 1966. And this is like a classic work of scholarship. And I was fascinated to find out that Terry Gilliam's notes for his animations in this movie make direct reference to Randall's texts. They reference the figure numbers. So she's got something like a thousand figures Mm -hmm. in this catalog, kind of snipped out of the margins. Um, So I just talked about uh, the importance of thinking about these images' context in understanding them. But for Randall writing this catalog, she just wanted to show as many examples of marginal illumination as she could. So she cropped them very closely. She isolated them from their context. And in a way, that's one of the things that I think made Gilliam's animations possible mm-hmm. in isolating these images from their context, this invited him to imagine a completely new context for them and to imagine the ways yeah. that they could interact with each other in these fun, creative ways. Yeah, that he very much does kind of create these new contexts for them. He's very playful with the images, um, very kind of interested in transforming their meaning. Yeah. So this practice is in some ways very deeply informed by this kind of trick of modern scholarship. Mm -hmm. But it's also very medieval because these marginal illuminations have kind of these affinities with each other. Mm -hmm. And medieval artists would work oftentimes from model books so they could consult a model to see, oh, how did, how do I show an, uh, someone sitting with their legs crossed in precisely this way, uh, copy this model. So we see Gilliam actually using this example of modern scholarship as a kind of medieval model book for his animations. And that's very exciting in a lot of ways. And also, you know, really exciting to think about just as well, the fact that, you know, he is actually sitting down and working with current, fairly current scholarship. I mean, so this book, uh, yes. I mean, you described as a classic of the field. I'm not sure what reception would have been like quite then, but it would have been less than 10 years old when he was working with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it's very exciting. Yeah. So I think this has uh, kind of really highlighted a lot of the things that are exciting about the kind of visual culture behind this movie And once again, the ways in which it's playing with the medieval world in a lot of exciting ways. Our next section, Fabula Nostra, is uh, the one in which we talk about a movie that we would make uh, inspired by this one. 
often it's a movie that we come up with that we think is better than this one. In this case, it might not quite be that since uh, I have a feeling we're both going to say that we like this movie quite a bit. But what would you do if you were going to kind of come up with uh, something inspired by this film? Well, I think medieval literature and manuscript culture is all about retelling, all about adapting narratives. And I love the way that marginalia can provide a visual gloss, a kind of commentary in medieval manuscript culture that's hard to replicate in film. I think Terry Gilliam did a great job. And I'd like to see some more filmmakers try. Animation is particularly well-suited to this, as Gilliam's work shows. And we're in a golden age of animation right now. Yeah. So one of my favorite animated series is Adventure Time, Mm -hmm. which was created by Pendleton Ward and is highly inflected with the heroic tradition of Arthuriana kind of by way of Dungeons and Dragons. Mm -hmm. So what I'd like to see is a mashup of we've got this like trend of super serious Arthur movies Mm -hmm. right now. I want to see those taken apart mm-hmm. by some kind of seriously lighthearted and lightheartedly serious animation mm-hmm. in the vein of Adventure Time. Something that plays with genre, something that plays with narrative, and where a traditional live-action narrative is kind of intention, but also in harmony with a surrealist, subversive mm-hmm. animated gloss. And there are lots of medieval sources to choose from. I think the French corpus is uh, kind of under underused in at least mm-hmm. Anglophone Arthur cinema. We could pull from Chrétien de Troyes, certainly, who has great ripping yarns, or from Marie de France, who was writing in England, but in French, who has some kind of vaguely... Arthurian stories, but lots of kind of women-driven narratives. Mm -hmm. So that's my kind of vague idea. Yeah. What's yours? So uh, mine is similarly inspired by the fact that this in a lot of, this is very much, I would say, an uh, Arthur movie that I deeply enjoy more than a lot of these uh, very dour, serious Arthurian adaptations that we have been getting recently. And uh, that the movies that I've enjoyed most in terms of uh, both this and this and one included, but more recent films as well, like The Little Hours, uh, like, you know, somewhere in between The Unknight's Tale, is that I really enjoy these medieval movies that are playful, that are funny and comedies or at least have comedic elements. And that in particular, I would say also often kind of embrace certain kinds of deliberate anachronisms as a way of uh, making it clear that the Middle Ages has has relevance and that people in the Middle Ages had a sense of humor and weren't just essentially walking around in a cloud of fog and dirt waiting to die. (laughs) (laughs) That feels more modern. (laughs) It does, exactly. That I think that's how modern people want to see the Middle Ages, because that's kind of how we actually deep down see ourselves. Yeah. And want to pretend that's something that we've fixed, but we haven't. Right. Or that someone had it worse. Yes. So along those lines, I would love to do a real Arthurian comedy. Yeah. And so I was thinking uh, live action and in terms of, you know, some actors that I really enjoy. I think Adam Scott 
could be a really fun <laughs> King Arthur, probably with a fake beard. <laughs> and also because I would really like in this Arthurian comedy to reintroduce the idea of women existing and mattering. Whoa. Which is, I would say, the biggest <laughs> raw of, uh, of this film from my perspective. You know, obviously the most kind of obvious, uh, you know, other main character to include would, of course, be Guinevere. And uh, I think that a really great Guinevere would be Kristen Wiig. Mm, yeah. So I think that would be a lot of fun and something that I'd really enjoy watching. Something that actually took the Arthur story, which, except for this movie, really has almost always been depicted in... Uh, a very serious, often tragic way, mm-hmm. and uh, go back to this idea of making it something uh, funny, something occasionally absurdist, something that perhaps kind of tries in various ways to draw on both our own humor conventions today and ones of the Middle Ages. So yeah, that's what I would do. Love it. Yeah. So moving into our last section, Estimatio, I think we have hinted already at the fact that uh, this is probably a movie that we'll both be giving a relatively high rating. Mm -hmm. Would you like to go first in terms of sharing how you would rate the film? Yeah, I'll go first. I definitely give this a five out of five. may not be true to history, but it is true to the inventiveness and the humor of the Middle Ages. I'm uh, I'm going to give it just slightly lower. I'm going to give it a four. And for once, I'm actually not downgrading it because of historical inaccuracies, because I do really appreciate the ways that it plays with the real things drawn from the medieval world and would potentially otherwise have given it a five, if not for the fact that it does, you know, watching this as a woman in the 21st century, it does bother mm-hmm. me that this is not a movie that is inclusive of women's perspectives at all. Yeah. That women are typically minor characters who contribute very, very little to the plot and whose interior states are considered to be much less important overall uh, than those of men. Yeah. Very good point. You know, and I will say, you know, sometimes something that, you know, it is worth keeping in mind, of course, that, This is something created by a group of people who, while, you know, brilliant and funny and in a lot of ways great, are all men. And incredibly privileged men at that. And incredibly privileged white men. And that that is very much the perspective, ultimately, that we see in this film is, you know, in some ways still what, you know, the way that privileged white men see or want to see the medieval world and that you know that is something that is very apparent upon watching it especially at a moment where in medieval studies we're very invested in thinking about other ways to see the medieval world absolutely so thank you so much for joining me oh thank you for having me so uh, to uh, our listeners first of all uh, Maeve where can they find you on the internet You can find me on the internet on Twitter at Medium Mavum. I'm going to spell that because it's long and complicated and fake Latin. M-E-D-I-U-M-A-E-V-E-U-M. Yeah, so find me on Twitter or say hi in the Media Evil Facebook group. Yes, please do. And uh, for those of you who are uh, new listeners in particular or old listeners who have not yet done this, please uh, subscribe to the podcast on whatever is your preferred podcatcher app. And please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. That's really a great way to help other listeners find us. And if you have any questions for me, I'd love to hear from you uh, via email at media.evilpod. That's M-E-D-I-A dot E-V-A-L-P-O-D at gmail.com. 
And please also follow us on Twitter at Media Evil Pod and join the Media Evil Facebook group. It's a great community where people talk about a number of things related uh, closely or tangentially to the Middle Ages. And it's a really fun space to explore that. And the best place to find medieval penis tree pictures. Definitely the best place to find medieval penis tree pictures. So for more medieval penis trees, go there. And uh, also, please feel free to follow me on Twitter or Instagram for occasional medieval musings and also pictures of my pets. And I am at Sarah If Decker on both of those platforms. Uh, So thank you very much for listening to Media Evil and see you in another two weeks. Bravely bold Sir Robin rode forth from Camelot. He was not afraid to die, oh brave Sir Robin. He was not at all afraid to be killed in nasty ways. Brave, 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 brave Sir Robin. Was not in the least bit scared to be mashed into a pulp Or to have his eyes gouged out and his elbows broken To have his kneecaps split and his body burned away And his limbs all hacked and mangled, brave Sir Robin His head smashed in and his heart cut out And his liver removed and his bowels unplugged And his nostrils raped and his bottom burned off And his penis split and his... That's... that's enough music for now, lads <laughs>